We're honored that you've chosen to make Prairie View a part of your Christmas Eve tradition, and I really believe that there are a few things better than brothers and sisters in Christ coming together on Christmas Eve and celebrating the Incarnation, celebrating God become flesh. The past several Sundays, we've been given three different reasons why Jesus came, as we've asked this question of why. Why is the Incarnation so important? Why does it matter so much? Why do we take such much time celebrating something like the Incarnation? Well, we talked about those three reasons, and number one was to reveal what God is like. That's why Jesus came. Number two was to fulfill the Old Testament. And number three was to challenge our loyalties, because Christ demands every single ounce of our loyalty go to him and him alone. Tonight, I'd like to briefly discuss a fourth and final reason why Jesus came. And as I talk about this, you may be thinking that this is often something that we reserve for the other big Christian holiday, and that's Easter. But as you listen to this, bear with me, and I hope you'll see why I believed it was worth mentioning tonight at Christmas. So I'll be reading from Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, if you'd like to follow along with me. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So as Luke sets the scene for our passage, we see Jesus having a meal in the presence of sinners, which is something that he used to do pretty regularly. But it's not just Jesus and sinners who are present. The religious leaders are there as well. And the scribes and the Pharisees don't take too kindly to the demographics of this meal. And their frustration is obvious. They're frustrated because by eating with these sinners, Jesus is breaking down all the boundaries that any self-respecting religious leader would honor. But not only that, there are some people that you simply don't eat with. You avoid being with them at all, really, but you definitely don't want to eat with them. A meal is a showing of solidarity. A meal is a showing that we're all in the same boat. A meal is a showing of unity. Do you really want to show unity and solidarity with people like that? After all, Jesus, if these people start to believe that we're all sinners in need of a savior, if these people start to believe that we are all beggars looking for bread, if these sinners start to believe that we're all on the same playing field in need of God's grace, then who knows what could happen? Jesus is aware of the tension. He's not oblivious to the concerns of the religious leaders. And so he addresses it with a story. Look at Luke chapter 15, verse 3. Or what woman, excuse me, so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost? Until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. 
So he starts out with a story of a man who has a flock of sheep. There's a hundred sheep, which in that day wasn't a huge flock, but it was enough to pay the bills. It was enough to make ends meet. But the man loses one of his 100 sheep and he immediately goes looking. Now, considering he had 99 others, chances are it wouldn't have been the end of the world if he never found this sheep. More than anything, it might have just been a little bit frustrating. But the man looks, he finds the sheep and he rejoices that he's found the sheep. He invites his friends and his neighbors to celebrate with him for finding the sheep. Jesus then tells the scribes and the Pharisees that just like that man celebrates when finding his one lost sheep, God rejoices when one sinner repents, when one sinner is saved, compared to 99 people who think they have no need of salvation. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, maybe they're still not getting it. So Jesus tells a second story, and this time you'll notice something. You'll notice that he raises the stakes just a little bit. Look at Luke chapter 15, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So with the shepherd, we mentioned that he was probably making ends meet. He was probably able to pay the bills. But this woman is probably in a little bit different scenario. Chances are this woman was most likely a peasant. And if you look at the numbers, the guy loses one out of 100 sheep. And this woman loses one out of ten coins. If you look at it from a purely mathematical standpoint, this woman has more to lose than the shepherd that Jesus just mentioned. You can see this in the urgency that she has as she's looking for the coin. She sweeps. She turns on the lamp. You can picture her getting down on her hands and knees, looking at all the nooks and all the crannies under the tables, trying to find this one coin. And sure enough... Just like the shepherd, she finds what she was looking for, and she rejoices. Again, Jesus hammers home the same point, that God rejoices when one sinner repents, that God rejoices when one sinner is saved. Now, at this point, the scribes and the Pharisees seem to still be confused. Maybe they're still a little bit dumbfounded by this whole idea. And so Jesus takes one more shot at helping them get the point. And this time, the stakes are even higher. In Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11, we read about a man who has two sons. You notice we went from 100 to 10, now down to two. And the youngest son of this man goes to his father and asks for his inheritance early. And the father grants it. And the young man abandons his family. He goes and lives wildly in a foreign land, doing some very distasteful things, to say the least. As a result, he ends up poor, hitting rock bottom as he feeds pigs. Finally, he comes to his senses and he decides to return to his father. So he rehearses an apology that he's going to give to his father. He's hoping that maybe if I'm lucky, my father will take me back as a servant. 
or a slave or a hired hand. But then we pick up in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So the son returns home with his tail between his legs and his father runs out to meet him. Back then, no self-respecting man would run in public, especially not running to embrace the son who publicly shamed him. The son doesn't even get to fully say his rehearsed apology because before he can get it all out of his mouth, the father embraces him. The father shows compassion for him. And the father insists that they throw a party for the rebellious son. All the father seems to care about at this point is that his once dead son has repented of his actions and is alive again. As you look at this father, you can hardly even imagine that he has any thought in his mind of making his son earn back his status as son. Making his rebellious son prove himself worthy of being called his son. But not everyone is thrilled when the younger man returns home. We haven't really talked about the older brother yet. The older brother is angry and bitter and jealous. And if we're really honest, all of us can probably at some level understand why. The older brother never did anything wrong. The older brother never rebelled. He never had the presumptuousness to ask for his inheritance early. He never shamed his father publicly. And yet he never got a ring. He never got a robe. He never got a meal or music. And as a result, he despises his younger brother. Who does this younger brother think he is coming back and receiving grace after what he's done? Who does this young man think he is receiving mercy and forgiveness after what he's done? The father tries to talk sense into the older brother. The father tries to invite him into the celebration, but the older brother wants nothing to do with it. And that's how the story ends. Just like that. Now, of course, with such an abrupt ending, the people that Jesus was speaking to, the scribes and the Pharisees, things are left open ended. They're left most likely asking the question, what does this mean for us? And I believe we're called to ask the same question as we read this passage. But even more specifically, we're called to ask, what does this have to do with the incarnation? And what does this have to do with Christmas Eve? Well, I'd like to talk to two main groups of people here. Group number one is the unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever, know this. God has sought you out. The fact that you're here tonight shows that God has sought you out. In the same way that the man went looking for his sheep or the woman was looking for her coin, 
or the father ran out to meet his son. God has sought you out tonight. Charles Spurgeon refers to God as the hound of heaven, the one who seeks sinners out. And God has sought you out in the most radical way imaginable, not just by going out and looking for you like a sheep, not just turning on a lamp and looking for you on the ground, not just waiting on the porch, hoping that you'll come home. God has sought you out by sending his son in the flesh to die for you. Now, if you're a believer, the same message is for you. Only you're called never to forget it. God has sought you out, too. It was not through your own wisdom or your own knowledge or your own discernment that you came to know Christ. God looked for you. God searched for you. God ran to meet you. And nothing shows that more clearly than the incarnation. So don't ever let pride cause you to forget And don't ever let time water down that truth that God in his grace sought you out, just like he's seeking out the worst of sinners at this very moment. But again, what does that have to do with the incarnation? Well, the truth is that it does us no good to celebrate Jesus's birth if we don't remember his death. It does us no good to celebrate Jesus's birth If we are not humbled by the fact that he sacrificed himself for us, it does us no good to celebrate Jesus's birth if we are not in awe of the resurrection. Jesus Christ was born to a virgin, born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, worshiped by wise men and feared by Herod. And we celebrate those things. We do not discount those things. But in eternity, none of those things matter if we do not remember the core truth that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. So tonight and tomorrow, we sing of a manger, but we remember a cross. We sing of a star over Bethlehem, but we remember when the stars went black upon Jesus' crucifixion. We sing of a birth but we remember that we are saved by a death. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And if we don't believe that, believing in the incarnation does us no good in eternity. Let's pray. Father, we come together on a night like this to worship you, to celebrate that you sent your son born of a virgin, perfect, sinless. We celebrate the fact that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. That he put on flesh, leaving the glory of heaven behind to save people like us, who by no means deserve it. And God is important and awe-inspiring as the incarnation is. God, I pray that we will all leave here knowing that that was not the end of the story. We as Christians do not just celebrate that you sent your son in the form of man. We celebrate that your son died for us. We celebrate that your son's body was broken and his blood shed. 
for me, for all of us. And God, this Christmas, in spite of the busyness of going from family to family, place to place, meal to meal, I pray that we can have time to reflect on that. That we will never forget that in your grace you sought us out. And that we see that no more clearly than when we look at the incarnation. God, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. We thank you for Christmas. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.